on the air. Greetings listeners from your handily genial host John Derbyshire this fine mid-October evening. This week's podcast opens with a morality tale. I relate it with no pleasure at all. A pundit that I have been following for years whose show I enjoy with some minor reservations and who, I believe, is doing useful work to the advantage of our republic, this pundit committed an act of minor folly. Shortly after he had committed it, consequences of it blew up, leaving him embarrassed. As my blessed mother used to say, worse things happen at sea. They surely do. I'm sorry this one happened, and I'm particularly sorry it happened to this pleasant and patriotic guy. The tale bears telling, though, so here it is. My normal routine on a weekday evening is to sit down to dinner at 7.30 eat steadily for half an hour while making light conversation with Mrs. Derbyshire and such family members or friends as may be present, then, at eight o'clock, move to the living room, usually clutching my half-eaten dessert, switch on the TV and watch Tucker Carlson's show. Friday evenings, I'm under pressure to get my podcast finished and posted. I don't let that interfere with my normal routine, though. I have to eat dinner, and, having eaten it, I have to sit still and do something undemanding while my digestive tract grinds through its work. There aren't many things less demanding than watching TV. So, the eating done and digestion well underway, I watch Tucker before returning to my podcast labours. I don't always watch the whole show. If I'm behind with the podcast, I cut out at the first commercial break. Or later, if Tucker starts talking about flying saucers, I quit right there. Well, last Friday, Tucker started in not with his monologue, as usual, but with an interview. The interviewee was Kanye West. I knew the name Kanye West because it shows up in New York Post headlines, attached to stories that I skip right over. I knew he was some kind of celebrity, and I think I knew that he was showbiz, not sports. 
That was the sum total of my Kanye West knowledge last Friday evening. I don't have to engage with celebrity culture, and you can't make me. I sat through the first few minutes of the show, but neither Tucker nor West said anything interesting. So I went to my study and recorded some podcast. Around 8.30, by which point Tucker has generally finished with his first segment and is halfway through his second, I stopped by the living room to see what Tucker was covering in that second segment. To my surprise, he was still sitting across from Kanye West asking him questions. I watched for a minute or two, again heard nothing interesting, and went back to my study. Apparently, Tucker gave over that entire hour to the interview with Kanye West, a thing he very rarely does. Why? West didn't seem very smart or eloquent. The few minutes I caught of him actually speaking, he was mumbling gibberish. I did some look-ups on the internet. So now I know who Kanye West is. He's a rapper. Even if publicly I like the empathy, I ain't finna talk about it another four centuries. One and one is two of me and you, that's infinity. I don't feel like she's running off. Not my thing, you understand. But then, rock and roll wasn't my parents' thing. Jazz wasn't their parents' thing. And so on, back to the Bronze Age. Shakun Asangu. A young friend, a white male, who listens to rap music for pleasure, tells me that West's is much better than the average. West isn't just a performer, either. He's a producer and an entrepreneur in those black styles of performed and recorded music, and also in the fashion business. He has real entrepreneurial talent, and he's made himself stinking rich. That's not nothing, and all good luck to him. The point of a primetime pundit show, however is not to showcase entrepreneurial whiz-kids. The point is for the pundit to sound off intelligently on matters of public concern and to bring on guests who will do the same for five or ten minutes while the pundit catches his breath. So, what was Kanye West doing on Tucker's programme? For a whole hour... The proximate cause here seems to have been West showing up at a fashion show the previous Monday wearing a shirt with the legend White Lives Matter printed on it. As far as I can fathom his political views, and it ain't easy, West started out a traditional left, liberal, Democrat-voting, anti-white, anti-Semitic, black American. Then, in recent years, he lurched off to the populist right, hobnobbing with Donald Trump and running for president himself in 2020 
on an independent ticket. Religion seems to have something to do with it. West describes himself as a Christian, although I can't find any information on his church-going habits. Whatever. Right now, he seems to be travelling with the black conservative movement. Next year? Who knows? There's nothing especially black about any of that. It's basic celebrity stuff. There's no reason to expect a celebrity to have any well-thought-out political philosophy. Smiling for the paparazzi, or looking happy or sad or angry while reciting lines that someone's written for you, those are just physical talents, like being able to wiggle your ears. They don't need much connected thought. Most celebrities are low IQ. Sure, entrepreneurial success like West's needs some people skills and some planning ability, but still not much abstract thinking. So, once again, what was Tucker thinking, giving West a whole primetime hour to ramble incoherently? What he was thinking was, in a word, Equity. Conservatives who are respectable enough to have their own TV shows, a category that obviously includes Tucker, live in terror of being thought hostile to blacks. They want 13% of their guests to be black for the sake of equity. For the Tuckers of the world... Black conservatives are gold. Even airhead celebrity blacks, who are no more able to articulate consistent conservative opinions than they are to solve cubic equations. So, there's your answer. Tucker was virtue signalling. It came back to bite him, though. That Tucker interview was on Friday. The very next day, Saturday, October 8th, West posted a weird tweet on Twitter, saying that he would soon go, quote, Death Con 3 on Jewish people, end quote. And adding, as an afterthought, quote, You guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone, whoever opposes your agenda, end quote. Yes, he actually wrote Death Con for Death Con, either to add a bit more outrageousness to the anti-Semitism or, much more likely, from sheer illiterate ignorance. Twitter deleted the tweet and suspended West's account. Poor Tucker was left with egg all over his face. If there is one thing a cable TV primetime host dreads more than being thought racist, it's being thought anti-Semitic, or even just being accused of hosting an anti-Semite on his show. They really really hate when that happens. 
What do we learn from this, comrades? We learn that when selecting guests for your TV show, especially guests you intend to keep talking for an entire hour, you should stick with people who you know have given more than 30 seconds connected thought to issues of public policy. Corollary. Do not invite showbiz, sports or business celebrities unless they also have PhDs in political science. Just a footnote to all that. Tucker's interview with West was aired last Friday. West's tweet appeared on Saturday. Four days on from that, on Wednesday, we learned that J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, which Kanye West has been using for his various enterprises, will no longer take his business. As Rod Dreher points out at the American Conservative website, we are proceeding steadily towards a CHICOM-style social credit system in which, if you are suspected of harbouring thoughts not approved by the regime, private business corporations will not accept you as a customer. This action by J.P. Morgan Chase illustrates the process very clearly. Some days before that, we had had another illustration of this creeping and very creepy trend. On Friday, October 7th, the same day Tucker's interview with Kanye West aired, reports came out that PayPal would, starting on November 3rd, would sanction users who engage in, quote, prohibited activities. What did they mean by sanction there? They would, they said, fine such users up to $2,500 per offence, presumably just sucking the money out of your account. And what did they mean by prohibited activities? Quote, the sending, posting or publication of any messages, content or materials promoting misinformation or that present a risk to user safety or well-being, the promotion of hate, violence, racial or other forms of intolerance, that is discriminatory, end quote. We all know, of course, that what's being targeted there is the expression of opinions not approved by the progressive regime. Who gets to decide what is misinformation? Or what poses a risk to user safety or well-being? Or what forms of intolerance are discriminatory? Again, we all know the answer. Merrick Garland's thin-lipped apparatchiks get to decide. The regime's bought-and-paid-for Gestapo, formerly known as the FBI, gets to decide. 
the Southern Poverty Law Centre, half cynical money racket, half refuge for red diaper babies still weeping for the demise of the Soviet Union, which their parents told them was the hope of the world, the SPLC gets to decide. The day that new PayPal policy was aired, Friday, October 7th, PayPal stock fell 4% on the exchanges. Then, on Monday, the next trading day, it fell another 6%. It rallied a bit later in the week, but it's still underperforming the market. There could be extraneous reasons for that. Please don't come to me for deep market analysis. But whether or not that's the case, PayPal was badly spooked by the general public reaction to its October 7th announcement. The following day, Saturday the 8th, PayPal management scrambled to save the situation. A spokesman for the company put out a not very convincing email telling the world that, quote, PayPal is not fining people for misinformation and this language was never intended to be inserted in our policy. Our teams have made appropriate updates to correct these inaccuracies and we apologise for any confusion this has caused. End quote. Executive summary. Whoops. The pushback against PayPal wasn't just coming from us semi-fascist deplorable crackpots of the far right either. There were words of disapproval from Senators Marsha Blackburn and Tim Scott, from Brendan Carr at the Federal Communications Commission, from a spokeslady for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and from former president of PayPal David Marcus. Oh, and also from Elon Musk. We can dare to hope that if the GOP gets control of Congress, or even just of the House, in the upcoming midterms, they might take some legislative action against these big software monopolies fronting for the Democratic Party. That's assuming, of course, that Republican legislators can spare some time from voting more $5 billion aid packages to Ukraine. A British Foreign Secretary of the 1820s, congratulating himself for having recognised the former Spanish and Portuguese colonies in South America as independent countries, boasted that, quote, I called the new world into existence to redress the balance of the old, end quote. It is possible, as of this week, that the balances of both the new world and the old one may be redressed by the very old. Let me explain that. Here in the new world, our spirits were lifted. I mean, those of us who loathe and detest the Democratic Party and its 
totalitarian aspirations, our spirits were lifted on Tuesday by the news that Tulsi Gabbard, former U.S. Army platoon leader, Democratic representative and candidate for the 2020 Democratic Party presidential nomination, Tulsi Gabbard has quit that party. Ms. Gabbard, whose forename is of Sanskrit origin, is a devout Hindu. Her political positions are sufficiently close to my own that my first reaction on hearing the news of her defection this week was... What took her so long? As she deployed her parachute to leave the party, Ms. Gabbard tweeted that... Quote, I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that is now under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racialising every issue and stoke anti-white racism, actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, end quote. Meanwhile, over in the old world, here is Suella Braverman, Britain's Home Secretary. That's Attorney General, near enough. Mrs Braverman has a law degree from Cambridge University, a master's degree in law from the Sorbonne, and she is qualified to practice as an attorney in New York. At age 42, Two, Mrs. Braverman is one year older than Tulsi Gabbard. Braverman is her husband's name. Her parents are of Indian origin, and she is a devout practitioner of that other great Indian religion, Buddhism. As noted here at vide.com the other day, on the subject of the British Empire, My heart and Mrs. Braverman's heart beat as one. We both believe that the Empire was, in her words, quote, a force for good, end quote. Much more to the current political point, Mrs. Braverman is an outspoken immigration sceptic. Sample quotes from her, quotes, The unexamined drive towards multiculturalism as an end in itself, combined with the corrosive aspects of identity politics, has led us astray. It's not bigoted to say we have too many asylum seekers who are abusing the system. It's not xenophobic to say that mass and rapid migration places pressure on housing, public services and community relations. Opinions like that are very widely held in Britain, but to hear them from a politician of any party is very unusual. They are totally at odds with the official position of her party, the Conservative Party. The leader of that party... Prime Minister Liz Truss, 
in one of her first speeches after attaining that office last month, Liz Truss told her fellow countrymen that she wants to boost economic growth by increasing immigration. Mrs Braverman's colleagues in the UK government would be clutching their pearls and swooning at her heterodox opinions, if not for the fact that they are much too busy trying to hold on to their jobs as their party plunges to depths of unpopularity not hitherto plumbed. Polls show the opposition Labour Party with a 34% lead. The Prime Minister's own approval rating is 9%. Yes, single digits. She just fired her Treasury Secretary. She may very well be gone herself by the time you hear this. So, Mrs Braverman's heterodoxies on immigration and diversity aren't making as much of a splash as they would in a stable political situation. It's nice to hear them, nonetheless. Since I have mentioned the confessions of Tulsi Gabbard and Suella Braverman, I should add that Prime Minister Liz Truss is an Anglican, although apparently not a very observant one. Buddhism is, of course, older than Christianity. Hinduism is way older than that. Older even than Judaism. So, here we have two ladies, Mrs. Braverman and Ms. Gabbard, in the old and the new world, respectively, both adhering to very old religious traditions, both fearlessly articulating the right way forward for their nations, while politicians bearing a newer faith, or no faith at all, fumble and stumble. As I said, the very old world may step up to redress the balances of the new world and the old. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. All right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come out of the closet. I'm going to confess to being the thing that dare not speak its name, the thing that for decades has been mocked, scorned and denounced from all places on the political spectrum, radical, liberal, conservative or reactionary. Stand aside, please. I'm coming out. Yes, I am... Brace yourselves, please. I am an isolationist. I don't want American troops stationed anywhere in the world other than here in the USA. I don't want our diplomats meddling in other nations' squabbles for any reasons not strictly commercial. I want the repeal of all treaty obligations that would require us to go to war with A 
on behalf of B. I don't want the USA to belong to any international bodies. No, not even the United Nations. Especially not the United Nations. The whole thing is a 1940s anachronism and a blight on parking in the eastern side of midtown Manhattan. I don't want any of my tax dollars to go to foreign aid. The transfer of wealth from poor people in rich countries to rich people in poor countries. For immigration, I laid out my preferred policy, which I christened Derbian Minimalism five years ago. I offer it to the federal government free of charge, although I would appreciate a credit somewhere. In brief, I will grant the right of permanent settlement here for number one, spouse and minor children of citizens, number two, concert pianists, Nobel Prize winning physicists, and other highest-level talents. Number three, exceptional individuals to whom we owe a collective national debt of gratitude. That's it for permanent settlement. Foreign students in very limited numbers. Businessmen and tourists only if closely monitored from entry to exit. Derbian minimalism. Say it loud, say it proud. Surely we have enough issues to occupy us here in our homeland? Let's make sure we're well enough armed to repel any invaders. That aside, let the rest of the damn world go hang. Item. In my July diary, I confessed to having suffered from wiki guilt. Quote from self. I use Wikipedia all the time while knowing how biased towards regime ideology much of it is. Wikipedia is evil, but handy. Hence my Wiki guilt. Well, now I have assuaged my wiki guilt. In response to a begging window that came up a few days ago, I am now paying $3.10 a month to the Wikimedia Foundation, supplementing whatever the DNC and Big Tech pay them for promoting their agendas. Call me over-scrupulous, but if I'm using the thing, getting benefit from it, I ought to pay for it, if only at the minimum rate, which that monthly $3.10 is. Right? End quote. Once again, that was me speaking in July. Then this week I saw this very informative tweet from someone using the handle Equitus. Along with its accompanying tweets, 
It's too long to quote in entirety, but it spills the beans on Wikimedia. For examples, Wikimedia's spending has soared from $10 million in 2010 to $112 million by 2020. Year 2021 website hosting cost $2.4 million, which is less than it cost in 2012. Less than half of what they spend goes on directly supporting the website. The rest of their spending goes to crazy left organisations. Actual quote. This one is a doozy. Quote, Back in 2017, a Wikipedian called Guy Macon wrote a strident article entitled Wikipedia Has a Cancer. He predicted Wikimedia's runaway spending would bankrupt Wikipedia resulting in its takeover by Facebook or Google. Since then, Wikimedia's budget has almost doubled, end quote. And so on. After I had read these tweets, I promptly cancelled my $3.10 monthly subscription to Wikimedia. Do please check out those tweets. The tweeter, once again, has the handle Echitus, all lowercase, E-C-H-E-T-U-S. It's the name of a rather evil character in Greek mythology. I know that because I looked it up on Wikipedia. Item. Wednesday this week, October 12th, stood precisely midway between October 2nd and October 22nd. Why did I tell you that? Because October 2nd and October 22nd this year both mark a 10th anniversary. The anniversary, in each case, of the death of an important race realist. My fellow race realists, bow your heads in acknowledgement. The first of those dates, October 2nd, was ten years on from the death in 2012 of groundbreaking evolutionary psychologist J. Philippe Rushton. Rushton's 1994 book, Race, Evolution and Behaviour, introduced us to Rushton's Rule of Three. That's the fact that on a large number of physical, psychological and behavioural indices, the average for Asians is here, the average for Africans is there, and the average for whites is somewhere in between them. 
Our own Steve Saylor posted a very comprehensive obituary notice for Rushton here at vday.com on October 4th, 2012. October 22nd this year was 10 years on from the death, also in 2012, of behavioural psychologist Arthur Jensen. Our obituarist here was Jared Taylor, posting on vday.com October 30th, 2012. For those who don't know about Jensen, here's a longish quote from Jared's post. Quote, In 1967, Jensen received a Guggenheim Fellowship to study at the Centre for the Advanced Study in the Behavioural Sciences in Palo Alto, California, where he planned to do research for a book about how cultural deprivation depresses the intelligence of minorities. At the centre he met a geneticist who persuaded him to study the genetics of intelligence, and this completely changed his views. Instead of writing a book, he wrote his famous February 1969 article for the Harvard Educational Review, titled How Much... Can we boost IQ and scholastic achievement? In this 123-page article, he laid the foundation for a correct understanding of intelligence. IQ tests are valid and reliable. They are not biased against minorities. Social mobility means that the genes for high IQ are concentrated in higher social strata, and there is a substantial genetic contribution to both individual and group differences in intelligence. End quote. J. Philippe Rushton and Arthur Jensen, two giants of race realism and also of academic courage. Bow your heads, please. That's all I have, ladies and gents. Thank you for your time and attention, and for all your emails. If you go to the vdare.com website around mid-month, you will generally see a blog post from me under the title From Derb's Email Bag. There I post some emails that have particularly caught my fancy, always anonymously, of course, along with my responses to them, except when I don't have a response. And while I'm advertising... Be sure to catch my end-of-month diary at, uh, you know, the end of the month. The diary is now in its 22nd year, for which I probably deserve some kind of award. Award committees, please note, I can be reached 
at vdare.com. As well as being the centenary of Max Bygraves and the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, this weekend marks Mrs. Derbyshire's birthday. To make sure my lady is in a good humour for the occasion, I've been catching up on some home maintenance chores that she has been nagging me about for months past. If you, like me, are a survivor of the 1970s, you will know what song was going through my poor head as I hammered, glued, sanded and painted. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. I truly can